Picture this. Lightning strikes your dreamscape one unexpected evening, stirring you from your slumber with the almighty power of a flawless idea. An idea that will improve people's lives and solve society's problems in previously unimagined ways. Bleary-eyed, you type out the concept on your phone and fall back asleep, grinning at your genius. Morning arrives, and with it, a sudden nagging sense of doubt. Though still confident in the life-altering potential of your idea, the reality of the situation is hitting home. How are you actually going to turn this idea into a reality? What form will your product take in the physical world? How will you convince users of its benefits? When can you launch? Enter Vanessa Larco. A partner at the Silicon Valley-based investment firm NEA, Vanessa has a passion for helping founders bring their products to life. Her years of experience in product management, including overseeing web and mobile apps at Box and contributing to the teams on Xbox Connect and Surface at Microsoft, have left her with clear eyes on what it takes to transform a concept into a real-life, functioning product. First, I have to understand who are you building this for? Like, why do you think it's a good idea? And then once you define who, then you have to figure out what are you doing? What problem are you solving? Vanessa joins us for a conversation touching on what exactly the role of a product manager consists of and the questions entrepreneurs need to ask themselves to make sure their products will strike the balance between revenue, engagement, and virality. Please enjoy our conversation with Vanessa Larco. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Vanessa, it's great to have you on the show. Um, you've had a fascinating background working at some incredible startups and now you're here at NEA. Uh, Want to really hear to get us started? Like, how did you get into the whole startup world? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I, I was kind of raised into it. My mom was computer science in the late '70s and had her own string of software startups. And then um, I was just really good at math and science and terrible at everything else. So I knew I had to study engineering based careers. Um, and so I, I studied computer science in undergrad and uh, didn't really think much of it. And then when I graduated, I noticed all the jobs were on the West Coast. Um, and so I jumped into it um, and started building software right out of college. Very nice. And what, what's been your kind of trajectory? Which companies were you at and how did you get to NEA? Yeah. So uh, after college, I went to Microsoft um, because back in the day it was cool. Um, and now it's becoming cool again. So it's, it's coming in and out of fashion. Um, I joined Microsoft uh, on the Surface team um, back when the Surface was a really big computer or a big table. And I remember calling my mom and telling her I was really excited because I thought touch technology was going to be the future. I wasn't wrong, but it was just a long time ago. <laughs> um, and then I went to Xbox and I worked on Connect version one and I ran the speech recognition experience roadmap. And I remember at that point calling my mom and saying, well, speech recognition, that's going to be the future. And uh, again, not wrong, but 10 years early. <laughs> um, 
And then I left Microsoft. I wanted to go somewhere smaller. Um, I wanted to see what all the hype was around Silicon Valley because everyone kept talking about it. And I joined Playdom. Uh, which was a social gaming company. And then from there, I had my own startup, also in gaming. And then I had enough of gaming and went into enterprise software. So I worked at Twilio and then most recently at Box. Always as a product manager, though. Okay, amazing. So you've built this expertise in product. And I really want to take this opportunity to really deconstruct the way you view products. Uh, how to think about it, best practices, pitfalls to avoid. And uh, before we dive in though, how do you even define it? Like a, the role of a product manager and uh, like how do you view also a product in terms of like what are the key components of one that you think about when, in terms of a framework? Yeah, what a product manager does, um, everyone tries to define this. It means different things, but essentially you're the person that's figuring out what should get built. Um, how and, well not how, when and what form it will take, um, when it's going to launch, and then you manage the adoption of that. So what does it take to get into people's hands? Um, whether that's empowering your salespeople or your marketing people or going out and figuring out how to acquire the users yourself. Um, people like to say it's the mini CEO of whatever you're working on. That kind of glorifies it a bit. <laughs> you're kind of like the janitor. You're <laughs> just picking up all the pieces and making sense of it. Um, but it's, it's a really fun role. Well, many startup CEOs also feel like the janitor, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it probably is a good uh, good analog. So, what like let's say so let's start from the beginning. So, someone has a concept, okay, yeah. and you're in charge of you know turning this into an actual product. Where do you even start? What are the parameters that you define at the beginning? Well, you first have to understand who are you building this for. Like, why do you think it's a good idea? Um, and then once you define who, then you have to figure out like, what are you doing? What problem are you solving? Hopefully you're solving a problem. Sometimes in entertainment, you're not, um, but we can get into that later. Um, and then what are people doing now? And what is the cost for them to switch to what you are proposing? Um, if the cost to switch is great, then you should think, is it worth it? Like, is someone actually going to stop doing what they're doing today and use this thing instead because it provides what? Is it significantly cheaper? Is it significantly better? Um, so you have to figure out what is it going to take for people to adopt? You have to in, really do your homework there. And then what is it going to look like? Um, what shape should it take? And then you work with engineers and they'll they'll help guide you on how it should get built. What's the right back end and infrastructure? Um, and then sometimes you end up being the project manager. So you figure out what's the timeline, what are the milestones? Um, and inevitably, uh, you're going to set milestones with your engineers and things are going to slip. And then you're the person figuring out, well, okay, what do we cut or do we just extend the timeline? And that's, that's most of the constant struggle that a PM deals with every day is what can we cut? When do we extend? If you extend too much, you might miss your window of opportunity. Um, but if you cut too much, then you might not provide the value you promised. So that's the struggle every day. Right. And then when you launch, um, you have to figure out, well, is it doing what we thought it was going to do? What do the metrics look like? What should the next things we launch to try to figure out how do we get more people in this thing? Um, how do we get people to pay us? So these are the fundamental questions you kind of wrestle with every day. Got it. What are the biggest mistakes people make at the beginning of this journey of thinking about a product? What is like some things you've seen over and over again that are just, you know, don't lead to a good place? 
Yeah. Um, well, there's a spectrum of, of how good a PM listens. There's They listen too much to where they can't pick a path and go, right? They ask too many people for their opinions. They get really lost and then they're kind of try to compromise too much. And then there's the other spectrum, which there's uh, product managers that think they know everything and they don't ask for any customer feedback. Um, and both of those are big mistakes. You want to be somewhere in the middle. You want to get some information from your potential users or your current users. Um, and then you want to have a strong hypothesis as to what's going on and where the opportunity is. Uh, so you want to balance there. And then another mistake is how you treat your team. Uh, some product people think, well, like I'm the CEO, I'm going to tell those engineers what to do. Like that's it. Or tell the designers what to do. Uh, that's a big mistake. Um, these people have to be really bought into your vision. Um, they need to put in their own creativity into it. So the best thing you can do as a PM is really set that goal, have everyone on the team believe that that's what we're trying to achieve and let everyone interject some ways of how we get there. And that's how you build a great product with a really talented team. Okay, awesome. And what are kind of like some unifying uh, metrics that you use that are helpful to always keep track of? Again, through the life cycle. So at the beginning, what kind of things are you looking for? And then, you know, once you launch, what are the most important metrics? Yeah. So I think um, all metrics boil up to like three overarching metrics. Um, they are revenue, monetization, right? Like a million ways to slice and dice that, but overall you want to care about what money is coming in. Um, the second is engagement slash retention. Um, the actual end goal is retention. You want to retain your users. Um, and the third one is virality or distribution, which is like, how are you getting users into your product? Those are the three umbrellas. Um, and within my product, my former product teams, um, I used to ask everyone to We'd have color, we color coordinated those three big metrics. Uh, and then every submetric we tied to one of those three. And then when you looked at your roadmap, um, you'd color your roadmap and you could see how many features are targeting which one of these metrics. And you could figure out, oh, we might be over indexing on monetization this quarter. All the things we're building is for revenue. Um, but we're not doing anything for engagement for our users or for virality. And so, um, those are the three overarching metrics. Now, there's submetrics underneath that. So uh, engagement is where most product managers spend all their time. How do we get people using the product every day? Um, so you want to look at daily active user. You want to look at, depends on your, totally depends on your product, but how many sessions per user per day? Or what's the time of each session? Um, and so, and then is there different patterns in the day or different segments using your product at different times? Is that what you would expect? Is there more of an opportunity? Um, but you really have to think about what is the value your product's providing, and then you can figure out what submetrics under those umbrellas make sense for you. Got it. What happens, like, uh, let's say uh, when these metrics clash, right, and you have to make the trade-offs? So a lot of times, for example, what gets in the way of more engagement is a paywall or yeah. some cost. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, so how do you approach that? Like when these, these kind of challenges come up? Yeah. Those are the times where you have like coming together moments with your team. Um, because most PMs want to get as many users as possible, right? You build this product and your engineers too. They want to see it, how many people can get into it. 
Um, but most of the times, uh, there's someone else, hopefully in the business that's like, nope, we need to make money. <laughs> so there's a trade-off and, um, people do a lot of testing around, well, you want to make sure you're monetizing as much as possible, but you don't want to be depleting your community. Um, because some, some business, it, it might take much longer for someone to convert to a paying user. So you want to a B test potentially when you put up the paywall, you want to play with pricing, you want to figure out how you should segment people. Um, but it's more of an art than a science at that point. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So just, uh, let's have like a little bit deeper on these okay. like, three metric areas. So, uh, under the revenues bucket, yeah. and like you said, there's lots of ways to slice on that yeah. and so forth. What have you found to be like the real go-to like revenue metrics that you care most about? Obviously, revenue is going up is a good metric, yeah. but what are just some more sophisticated ways to think about revenue? Uh, again, it depends on the business, um, but in some consumer businesses, you want to see repeat buyers. Um, so if you're an e-commerce company, how often are people coming back and buying from your site? or your app. Um, if you're a gaming company, we look at average revenue per paying user. So people that are paying you about how, on average, how much is it? Um, we wanna know like what's the conversion rate between free users and paid. We wanna know how long that'll take. So how many days or months before someone turns into a paid user. Um, we also wanna know Retention actually plays a big factor. These are all interrelated. Retention plays a big factor because the longer someone retains, ideally, if you know that they're repeat buyers for so many each month, mm -hmm. then you can kind of see that lifetime value of that user. Um, so yeah, so you can look at it a few different ways, but, but repeat and buying uh, average amount that they pay you those are some pretty good ones to look at. So let's let's look a, look a little bit about the lifetime value and yeah. acquisition costs and how you think about those. So um, when it comes to lifetime value, obviously you have to make a lot of assumptions, right? Because you can see, you never know when someone's going to totally stop using it. Potentially you, have, you can have your estimates, but when it comes to uh, estimating your lifetime value, have you found a best practice for like how to like, how to find the middle ground between like too conservative or too aggressive. Well, the fun part is that LTV is actually made up of those three big metrics I talked about. Um, so that, that helps. Um, but no, I mean, LTV is very specific to your business. Um, it's hard when you're early on because you don't have enough data to figure out what retention is going to look like. So your retention is probably zero. You've churned nobody uh, early on. That's common. Uh, so you can't say retention is infinite. Um, so you can look at some comps. So what are some of your competitors, um, to get competitor information or even just people in your industry, uh, look at videos like this, um, yeah. conferences, a lot of CEOs present their metrics and conferences. So scan the web, look through videos. Um, then you can get some benchmark metrics that can help you with some of your assumptions. Okay, cool. All right. So on the engagement side, yeah. uh, so clearly retention is a key component there. Yeah. Uh, what are the, so you, you mentioned a couple like uh, yeah. the length of sessions and pe getting people to come back. What have you found that like are the best kind of ways, especially now, like on the, at the cutting edge of like the best products that you're seeing now? What are some uh, best practices uh, that products are using to make sure people do keep coming back 
I know this is a super broad question. Have a good product. A good product. <laughs> <laughs> solve, solve something for your users that really matters. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing is that there's the inverse is true. Some products exist so that someone doesn't have to do something often. Um, at Box, uh, we had an admin console. Well, if we're doing our job well, hopefully the person responsible for Box doesn't have to fidget with anything. It's just so intuitive for their users, they can create their accounts and change their own passwords. Um, so we don't want the daily active user count to go out of control on our admin console. Um, I met with the founder a while ago and her product's like, yeah, we'll save all these people time because we just automatically do these things for them. And she was worried that her DAU of Reme wasn't going up. I was like, but wait, if you're providing value, it means people are going to use you less often. So that shouldn't be your metric. Um, and so it's important like, to figure out what it means in numbers when you're providing value for your users. Um, you don't, maybe you don't want your average session to be very long. Because um, right. I, you know, you can always make your website really poor performing, <laughs> and then it just takes forever to get anything done. Right. Um, so you can definitely cheat these metrics. We just have to be really honest and say if we are actually doing what we think we're doing for our users, what would that look like? Um, and then pick those metrics. Okay, got it. And then the third bucket you mentioned, so distribution, virality. Uh, what are some key metrics like? Submetrics under that that are most valuable? Yeah. So um, I like to think of virality in kind of two buckets. There's like your product's inherently viral. Uh, gaming tends to be viral. Um, inherently viral meaning that everyone gets a lot of value because they have more friends using it. Um, so like Uber is not viral. Uh, I can use Uber. It's perfectly fine. Sure, if there's a lot of people, there may be more drivers, but I'm not really incented to invite other people. I don't care if you use Uber or someone else. Um, but words with friends, however, uh, is really boring if I don't have friends in, in the game or Instagram. If I'm not, if I don't have friends in it, I'm not following anyone. It's kind of pointless. Right. So that Instagram and social networks are inherently viral. Um, if you have a, a pro most products aren't, um, majority of them, and then you have to figure out, well, what value can we provide users, uh, for having other people come in? And so there's some like side features you can build, or maybe you just incentivize people by giving them credits or whatever to invite people. But if you can really figure out a way, maybe it's not the core of your product, but some, um, features on the side that benefit from having other people. Um, that can help with that virality. And then some of the metrics you want to look at is, you know, number of invites accepted over number of invites sent per user. So like, how are people converting when they get this? Um, if you are incentivizing your users, you want to figure out, well, how much is that costing you? Uh, you want to pick the right amount of financial reward. Mm -hmm. Too little and no one's going to do it. Too much and you're eating away into your potential profits. Right. So um, you figure out like how much it's costing you for that incentivized virality. Um, we also like to look at uh, what's the effect of having someone that you brought in. So does that make you a better user? Does it make them a better user? Uh, so I like to look at engagement metrics for users that have invited friends versus those that have not invited friends. Right. And then you could potentially justify a higher incentive um, if you see that there's other metrics go up, which typically we do. Got it. Do you have a story that comes to mind uh, of like um, like what you would consider is like the like a perfect encapsulation of like what it means to be a product manager and it's like challenges? Do you recall any like particular experience uh, that really stands out where you know 
like the things that you're talking about really came to life and the real real life challenges of it because it's easy to look clinically at like these are the three things we're trying to do but when these things come into conflict in real world and how we dealt with it you know every product experience that i've had or every product i've worked on that we launched has been different mm-hmm. There's always something that happens out of left field that you never expected. Um, sometimes you start off with a set of metrics and realize those are the wrong metrics. Uh, I've had that happen a few times. Um, or we just didn't look at them for long enough and like bad things happen later on. Right. Um, so no, I think that that's why you don't, we were talking about earlier, you don't see people majoring in product management um, because you just don't know until you're in it. Um, sometimes I like to say it's like being a football, a college football coach. It's like, there's just so many random things that happen and you, the, you depend on the players on the field. So you depend on your designers and engineering team that you're working on. Um, and that really shapes what you can build and how you build it and how long it'll take you to build it. Um, and then where you're playing and what the environment's like. And there's just so many factors that just the more reps you get in, the better you start figuring out strategic plays. Um, and things start coming into focus after many, many years doing it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So for uh, an entrepreneur yeah. who, let's say, they've, they're getting started, they've got started, they have a bit of traction, um, when would you say is like the right time to bring in a product manager? Is it like right at the beginning or where in the life cycle do you think it's like absolutely necessary? Um, because like all of the different buckets you mentioned – I mean, you can go into it forever, but yeah. the issue is you have incredibly limited resources on time. Yeah. Uh, so well, how do you think about, you know, when to bring in a product manager and uh, how to actually find one? What, what do you think are the best, best practices there? Yeah, uh, bring on a product manager when you can find a really, really good one you can trust. Um, hiring a bad product manager is almost a kiss of death. Uh, it's very hard to recover from that because you not only build the wrong thing uh, and use your resources to, to build something that may not hit the mark. Um, but ten, typically you also burn the engineering team and the design team and anyone that's come in contact with that PM. Um, so the frustrating thing is if uh, the PM's not talented, then the whole team suffers. And so you'll have turnover in more places than one. Uh, so be very, very careful hiring your first product manager. I would say if the CEO is a solid product manager, do that as long as possible until the company has just grown so much that it's no longer feasible for the CEO to be the PM anymore. Um, And then hire an experienced product manager. Uh, It's very tempting to hire someone junior, someone from a great school. Uh, But again, those mistakes they're going to make, and they do, and you'll make them um, for the many years in your career, they're just very hard to recover from at a small scale. Um, That's why you don't see startups, even middle-sized startups in the thousand-person range, they still don't hire junior PMs. That's a whole other problem is that (laughs) we're not doing a good job in the industry of grooming and growing the junior talent. But the junior roles are only at like Facebook and Google and Microsoft who can recover from um, those mistakes easily. You don't see them in the middle-sized companies because they know how expensive those mistakes are. Got it. So what, how would you describe like, uh, what's like a level of experience if you had to put it in years, like of a product manager, the first product manager that a startup brings on board? I would say five to 10. Five to 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And reference check and reference check, not with their previous companies, but if you can get a back channel to the engineers or designers that have worked with them, it's really important. What do you think about like, as with many entrepreneurs and like, 
most people, I mean, sometimes people lean more quantitative and data oriented. Sometimes they lean, you know, more intuitive, qualitative. Um, And like you were saying earlier, it's the, how do you, you got to kind of be in the middle. Yeah. Um, Obviously certain CEOs are one way, certain ones are other, but with the product managers too, I mean, inevitably, like you have a computer science background and Mm -hmm. obviously you talk about math and science was just like your thing. Yeah. Um, So now it's obviously, I mean, it's critical for someone to be very savvy with how to handle data and be comfortable with numbers. At the same time, though, you know, you want to like a kind of a visionary product manager who just like can also out like think ahead of the customers. Mm-hmm. Like they're not even going to say these things, but they see it. So, what do you think is like the minimum amount of like quantitative prowess a product manager should absolutely have? Yeah. Um, and then you know how critical is it, or is it how does it relate also if the company has a data science or analytics person? How would you have them kind of interact with each other? Should your product manager be the first like super analytical product person or should you actually have a separate person who's like actually putting together the data? It's a great question. Um, okay, so PMs can skew technical, can skew uh, visual and experience. Um, they can also skew more on the data science side. It depends on the composition of your team. So if you have an engineering manager who's phenomenal thinking about the implications of the trade-offs that they're making on the technical on the technical side, then your PM doesn't have to be as technical as long as that PM and the engineering manager make a really good pair together. Um, similarly, if you have a really strong design lead or designer um, who will really push the PM on, like, we're not going to make certain compromises because this just doesn't make any sense and it's horrible. Um, so, you, you know, you kind of, if the PM's weak on the design side, then just hire a really strong designer. Um, but if you have a great engineering manager, maybe they don't need to be as technical. So you kind of just have to figure out where are your gaps on those teams and just find the PM that fills the biggest void. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the data science, I think every PM at this stage, especially on consumer, should be able to pull their own data. You right. should know SQL to some degree. I wouldn't hire any PM, even at the junior level. Um, you can learn SQL, take a Coursera course. It's not that hard. Um, but at the basic level, you should be able to pull your own numbers. Uh, once you have enough resources, definitely hire a product analyst who's looking for clues every day, who's looking at the data and saying, I think we have a problem over here. Or I found this interesting correlation or this new way to segment your users we never have thought of before. So they are just like looking for clues in the numbers all day and can bring some really amazing insights to the whole company. Uh, so I, I would pull my product uh, analyst to sit with the engineers and the designers. So they had a seat at the table. Um, instead of being the triad, now is like a four-prong approach okay, uh, to building a product. So product analyst, okay. A product analyst, correct. Okay, got it. It's got kind it. of a new concept, uh, but I think it's critical. Okay, very interesting. So that person is just looking through the data. What are the qualifications of that person in your opinion? Like uh, how savvy do they need to be actually with products in general or, yeah, you know? Well, because you get... so. Some folks in the job recs still call them data scientists, but um, you don't need someone with as much horsepower as a data scientist. I mean, if you can get one, great. But you want someone that's interested in understanding 
why the data looks the way it does. Okay. So you want some, the reason why I, I like the product analyst title is because I want someone that wants to influence what the product looks like yes. to then influence what the numbers end up looking like. Mm -hmm. So you want someone that can bridge and play with the product and say, I think this feature is causing this type of reaction later down the cycle um, of a user's life on the product. Uh, so the, the product analysts just lean a little more into the product management side. And what you'll start realizing is, your product analyst can do a little bit of product management. Your engineering manager says they can do product management. Your designer, now they're called product designers. Yeah. Um, so your product designer now is like, well, I'm kind of a product person too. And that's great yeah. as long as they all work really well together with like the central product person. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what would you say are some like critical resources that helped you in your product management role? So top software that you love or books you read like anything that you just say hey like if you want to if you're going to be a great product manager or you're going to manage product managers and you just want to get this world yeah. better what are like some go-to resources yeah so when i jumped into product management it wasn't really a thing um <laughs> so when i got their job at microsoft they're like hey you're not the best engineer we've ever interviewed do you want to do this product management job instead and you don't write code it's like okay um but there wasn't a lot of resources then so it was just trial by fire um and now there's a lot more resources out there um there's a lot of products that have come out for product managers um, one, we're not investors, but one that I find really interesting is called Product ProdPad. Um, and they just help you organize your roadmap. And they have a great blog about product management that I follow. Um, growth is also really important as a PM, especially in consumer. Uh, so I follow a lot of the growth hacking blogs. Um, Grow.co is a good one. And um, yeah, you just bits and pieces, whatever kind of speaks to you. And, and really what I would say is if you find a problem and you have no idea how to go about it, search for it. Some PM somewhere has written a blog post of how they dealt with it and what went well and what didn't. Um, so it's really on a case-by-case -case basis as to what you're experiencing. Got it. All right. Awesome. So now you've moved from, well, from the Microsofts of the world to Silicon Valley startups and now you're at NEA. Yes. Uh, an amazing uh venture capital firm. Thank you. And tell us, how did you like make the switch and uh, what's your role now? Yeah, um, it kind of came out of nowhere. I thought I would be a product manager forever. Uh, I love building products, but I've known NEA for many years and uh, we just kept in touch. They were the, the, the people I'd reach out to and I wanted to know what was happening in the world and there were some trends in the industry. Because um, in product, you're just so heads down in what you're doing. You don't have time to think about anything but your own product area. Um, and then when I popped my head up, they were to ask like, what's going on in the world? What are you seeing? They were like, have you thought about venture? <laughs> and I was like, no, I actually haven't. Um, but over the course of a few months, uh, we thought about it some more and I just thought that there would be some really interesting things I could carry over from evaluating, you know, what to build to what to fund. Um, what is some, what is, what are things people are building that would hit the mark and therefore we should fund it. Um, so the transition has been interesting. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot of things that are very different. So, um, learning a lot every day. Okay. Awesome. So for all the 
entrepreneurs uh, who are watching this, what, in your opinion, makes NEA different as a VC firm? Yeah. So NEA is one of the biggest firms. Um, we're $3.3 billion uh, for this la- latest round that we just, we just raised. Um, and we have kind of a team approach. Um, different venture firms function differently. Um, typically, when you get funded, you only get access to one person, the person that led the deal. But at NEA, you get about seven different people that you'll work with, uh, from recruiting to marketing to several partners that will help for different things. Um, so it's a, a team effort. And a lot of that's built into how we're compensated differently than most venture firms. So it's very encouraged to help other partners with their deals and with their portfolio companies. Um, and then we're the 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 fact that we're big gives us a lot of scale, so we can participate in all the rounds from the really early seed deals all the way to the growth stages. Um, so we're able to really grow and take a company from beginning all the way to whatever that exit looks like for them and beyond that too. Um, so we're really we have the luxury of being able to help build out, um, help the founders build out a long-lasting business. Okay, great. So yeah. for many like most entrepreneurs who haven't yet made it all the way. So like, let's say team sizes of five to a hundred. Yeah. Um, when they have, you know, when they look at all these metrics, all the different buckets that yeah. you mentioned, there is this like constant feeling of like, okay, like every single one can be infinitely better. Like, you know, because you're not done. Yeah. You're also still figuring out, you know, product market fit and yeah. value and so on. So what would be kind of like, your advice, both as someone who's been in, you know, other companies, <laughs> yeah. but also now looking from the outside. So you must be seeing, I mean, like hundreds of potential deals and it's probably rare to find like the perfect company. Wow. Like their yeah. revenue virality. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it's tough. So how do you kind of like, where do you, how do you handle like being able to visualize like, okay, like these few metrics maybe suck for this company right now, yeah. uh, but maybe I see them you know, improving it. Like, how do you think about that? And how should also entrepreneurs think about it? Because obviously, you know, you always know what can be a lot better, but what's the, what's the right way to interpret like the fact that, yeah, by definition, it's imperfect and unfinished. Yeah. It depends what round you're in. Um, If you're in much later rounds trying to figure out the metrics or product market fits a little scarier. Um, so earlier on, it's okay for the product market fit metrics to be a little wobbly and, and a little directionless, but, um, what I'd like to think of is a founders probably looking at one metric that they really want to see if they can move, um, or there's something that's actually taking off. So like, what's the one that's showing that glimmer of hope, right? What's the one that's giving you the founder conviction that this is worth chasing after, um, show that and explain it. Uh, and if none of them are really showing any promise, then think through, like, are we just looking at the wrong things or am I pursuing the wrong thing in general? Is my thesis wrong, but there has to be some metric that is giving you and the team hope. There's some reason everyone's going into work every day. And so find that and tell the story around that. Okay. That's not true. Yeah. Fantastic advice. Awesome. So, uh, would you have any other advice like for also specifically companies not looking to raise, uh, VC rounds? Um, when it comes to explaining their product. So you gave one amazing piece of advice right now, which is like, okay, what excites you and gives you conviction? Yeah. Tell the story of that. What other things do you think are like minimum required metrics that you expect companies to report? Whether it's series A, B, whatever have you, like, I know it's different, but 
like what are the things that you'd be kind of like, wow, you, you came to this presentation without this metric, that's kind of an issue. So what would you say are the minimum things you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, margin is an important one. We want to know what your margins are and how those are hopefully will either getting better over time or will get better over time. Um, that's an important one. Sometimes that gets left out. Um, so let's get, let's just dive a little bit into that. So I think everybody <laughs> understands like margin in the sense of, well, revenue, you know, minus expenses, right? But for a, like probably a majority of fast growth startups, sometimes there is no, you know, margin at the bottom. They're not profitable yet. So then you look at obviously like margin for incremental products. And right. stuff. So can you tell us like a little bit about how NEA specifically thinks about margin in high growth, non-profitable companies? Uh, well, we look at the unit. So how much are you going to sell your, if you're not selling your product, like how much are you going to sell it for and how much does it cost to serve that customer? Um, that's how we look at that. But for e-commerce companies, it's very black and white. Like how much does it cost to produce and ship and what are you charging above that? Um, so it, it depends on your business model, but we can always calculate margin. So for example, as an example, like a company like Netflix, who they're investing like billions of dollars into content. And then everybody's paying this like eleven ninety nine uh, a month. How would you kind of determine what the margin is there for a particular show, right? Because yeah, it's a good question. Um, I haven't come across that yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you know. Y- one thing I would look at in general is the cost to serve. So yeah, like how much does it cost to produce those shows? What, how many more users do you think you'll get because of those shows? What impact do those shows have on the retention of your users? Like you're you're doing them for some reason. What's the bet there? How much money do you project you'll make off of this huge investment that you're making up front? Um, and I think we'd slice it that way. Okay. Got it. Okay, so margin is one. What other key metrics do you expect to see? Churn. So we want to see retention or churn. Um, so what does your churn rate look like? Uh, and then tell us a little bit about why. If it's super low, we're going to ask why. Um, if it's really high, uh, we'll also ask why. If, um, But we want to just get an understanding of you're bringing people in, how many of those stay and how many of them churn out. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then there's other more specific to the business uh, metrics. So just growth. What does growth look like quarter over quarter or month over month? We want to see that little, you know, hockey stick curve that everyone looks for. Um, and then customer acquisition costs are really important. Um, know those numbers. Rarely you can get a pass if you've spent nothing on customer acquisition, but those are, I think some of the newer entrepreneurs trip up a little bit with, with customer acquisition costs, um, and measuring that. Okay, got it. Um, what are the best ways in which the Ivy community can support you in your endeavors here at NEA and beyond? Start awesome companies. Um, disrupt all the incumbents. Keep the the startup dream alive. I think it's really important. Um, you know, there, there's talk that some folks are getting discouraged because... Amazon is getting so big or Google is getting so big or Salesforce is buying everyone. Like, is there anything left to innovate? There is. Um, With every new technology shift, there's a ton of stuff that can be disrupted. So, you know, artificial intelligence, I think, will absolutely change the name of the game. And so... um, don't get discouraged by the naysayers. Find opportunities. Figure out what your edge is. Go for it. And then if it makes sense, and only if it makes sense, raise venture money. Um, Okay. 
Awesome. Thank you. This was yeah. incredibly informative. We're excited to follow your progress and support it wherever you. we can. Thanks, Vanessa. All right. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.